Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. So delighted to be able to communicate uh, here at week two as we're in this series, Best Blank Ever. And what a wonderful kickoff we had last week, uh, Pastor Craig, uh, with the message, Best Singleness Ever. And uh, just so you know that that probably would, since relaunch, since being in this facility, about every February we've dealt with relationships, right? So if one of the messages isn't your cup of tea, we encourage you, you can go on our web and go back to the podcast and get sufficient, sufficient, many other messages on marriage and relationships. That's my kind way of saying that if you don't like what happens here uh, today and the style that I take in this message, just go back to the last five years. I'm sure something will speak to you and edify you. With that being said, we are going to cover a mature topic today. And so parents, that just means um, if you don't want your child to listen or hear regarding this mature topic, now would be the time to sort of transition out, transition out. That being said, if you got a sermon card and want to follow along, I want to read our main passage of scripture today. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 27. The Apostle Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. He says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you bound to a husband? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Are you loosed from a husband? Do not seek a husband. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, 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 such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. Today I'm going to weave in and out of preaching and teaching with what I've just titled Best Blank Ever Week 2. Now before I move forward, let me say I am taking a unique approach Uh, most of the people here are a part of this community, been a part of this community for a while. That means I have relational equity with them. They know me and my wife. They they know our life. They know how we live. They know uh, we seek to be faithful in biblical doctrine and all of that. So if you're a guest, understand that the approach I'm taking today is not the normal style or approach I take. So keep that in mind. And uh, as I work through these narratives that are found in Scripture, I am using my imagination as if I was there in the story conversing with these individuals. And uh, I say that to say that I'm not seeking to establish doctrine today. I'm not teaching authoritative doctrine. All right? In fact, I even had my wife read 
my message today. That's probably uh, the first ever uh, that I've done that. And uh, you say, well, I noticed she wasn't here. Did she think it was that bad? <laughs> uh, no. Uh, unfortunately, our little one was under the weather. So with not having family in the area, she had to stay home to ensure we still have a, a well child environment in DP Kids today. So that's all my upfront information for you. And before I move on, let me pray. Father, we thank you that you're a good, good father. That you're a perfect father with perfect love that can cast out in perfect fear. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal Jesus to hearts and minds, to individuals, to marriages. Make much of Jesus. Help us to know you more, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of you and your will. I yield to you, Holy Spirit. You're my sufficiency. In Jesus' name, I pray. Now, if you follow me on Instagram, you are already well aware, I'm sure, of me seeking to tackle the topic of best sex ever. In fact, if you followed me on Instagram this week, you saw that there was a poll taken. And 88% voted yes regarding they wanted to hear a message in this relationship series on best sex ever. Those that voted yes were married, some were single, some were male, and some female. However, as I sought to move forward in that subject, I came to some serious obstacles. Let me explain. As a married man, now for 17 and a half years, I've never met another married man who testified that he had the best sex ever and that he knew the secret to pass on to the rest of us married men. So I struck out finding subject matter via that route. It's inappropriate for me to talk to any females regarding the topic of best sex ever, so that wasn't an option. But then I thought, let me via scripture interview some who went before us and live before us today. So I started with Abraham and his wife Sarah, and I imagined me interviewing them, interviewing Abraham regarding how to have the best sex ever, and it didn't go very well. For he testified to me clearly that he didn't know anything about the best sex ever. He explained that his sex life with his wife Sarah was filled with the pressure, the tension, and expectations of getting his wife pregnant. That it was really the proverbial saying of having an elephant in the room while they were having sex or being intimate. I imagined as I talked with Abraham and he talked about the situation of his marriage and this tension, I imagine him testifying and saying, look, my wife's primary, primary focus and goal each time was just to conceive a child and nothing else. That her main focus and the primary focus of her attention and her goal was not for pleasure, but for that purpose. 
He then reminded me, saying, look, I, I don't have the answer. My wife got so frustrated about our lack of child conception that she sent another woman, her maid, into my tent. Now, you talking about awkward. That's awkward. And I imagine Abraham saying, I can assure you that that wasn't the best sex ever. I didn't know if this went right, my wife would still kill me. I didn't know, nor if this didn't go well, if she would still kill me. And I imagine as I thought about this story, and we read Bible stories, and so often we begin to disconnect if, if this is us in the story. We disconnect our own issues and our marriage and the tensions of life. And I just imagine as I thought about Sarah, how she really, if you look at it, you can imagine how she's using sex just to get the life she desired. She's using it to reach the goal that she has to bear a child, to get her way, to become a mother. Imagine Abraham looking at me and saying, look, my wife became no longer willing to, direct, to directly work through the tension and difficulty we were both facing. So she handed off the issue to Hagar, her maid. It was at that point I was reminded of what an author, a current author and minister, Stephen Afterburn said. He said, what turns on almost every husband I know is a wife's willingness. With that, I moved on quickly to David. David, who became king of all Israel, King David, and he didn't provide all the context and content I was hoping for either. See, David's marriage was an arranged marriage, and it was arranged with evil intent. King Saul had promised to give his daughter to whoever would defeat Goliath. Goliath was the biggest warrior of the Philistine army. And if you know the story, David killed Goliath through faith in the name of the Lord, a slingshot and a stone. But after David defeated Goliath, King Saul, instead of giving his oldest daughter in marriage to David, he gave her to another man. And he gave David her younger sister. Her name was Michal. And he gives Michal to David for the purpose that she would be used as a snare for him. How? A snare by the type of dowry that King Saul would demand for the hope that it would result in David being killed. You say, what was the dowry he demanded? He demanded a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. I wouldn't want to be David. And even if David succeeded in providing the dowry, Michal would be getting a man waiting at the altar who just got done seeing and touching at least a hundred male private parts. That makes a very awkward start to a new marriage. But what's interesting is David was a second mile kind of guy. You remember Jesus, he tells about that if someone demands that you go one mile, a Roman soldier, that the spirit of the kingdom is go two miles. If an if a 
unjust demands made of you, show them how unjust by going even beyond it. So David doesn't just go and get a hundred foreskins of Philistines. He gets 200. He gets 200. Now David, according to Scripture, had a heart after God. And one area that this heart after God was shown was his praise and worship. One day in response to the Lord's help and victory, he danced with all his might in the manifest presence of God before the ark of God. And Michal, his wife, despised him. It's from that point on he had a wife he could have sex with, but he did not have a wife that he could be intimate with. For she withheld her soul from David. She withheld her heart from David. She withheld her spirit back from David. And so here is David in his marriage, and he could have sex with his wife, but it was only an outward act of physical engagement. It was just surface level. Some of you might be thinking, well, that is all a man wants, isn't it anyway? Some of you females, that might be how you think upon men and their sexual drive that all they want anyway is just the physical act. Maybe some of you single men who are here today who desire to get married one day and have sex with your spouse, you might be thinking, well, that's all I want is just the physical act. And to both of you, David's story communicates that this is actually not all that a man desires from his wife. David didn't find the best sex ever with Michal, or he wouldn't have so easily sinned with Bathsheba and then married her adulterously. Now, of course, that in no way justifies David's sin. That in no way justifies what he did. But then David didn't even find the best sex ever with Bathsheba. Bathsheba and this adulterous affair that then became a marriage wasn't the answer to the best sex ever or he wouldn't have married more women. In fact, 18 wives is the number normally attributed as the number of David's wives. Also, when you think about David's marriage and his relationship with Michal, if David had found the best sex ever with her, he wouldn't have testified what he did in 2 Samuel 1 regarding Jonathan. For Scripture records this verse, and unfortunately, due to homosexual perversion, and cultural eisegesis, that means because we live in a culture, we take what is prevalent or pervasive or acceptable or common in our culture, and we read it back into Scripture, meaning we go into Scripture looking to find justification for what our culture does. That's how you get into serious, serious issues in rightly interpreting the Scripture when you go with a heart to prove what you want to see in Scripture, and instead of letting Scripture expose us down even to the thoughts and the intents of our heart. And so this Scripture has wrongly been interpreted and perverted for selfish and evil desires in the day we live in. But it says, nevertheless, in 2 Samuel 1 and verse 26, David says, I grieve for you. 
Jonathan, my brother, you were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of a woman. Now in context, if you go read the story, Jonathan had just been killed along with his father, King Saul. And David laments their deaths. And David makes this statement that he experienced from Jonathan a love that was more wonderful than the love he had been shown or had ever experienced from his wives or from any woman. It leads me to ask, what's going on here? Well, first, what is not going on is a homosexual relationship. Notice he speaks of Jonathan as his brother, not his lover. Secondly, what is going on is that we are learning that David could have the physical act of sex with his wives, but it could not achieve all of what a man actually desires. For God actually has wired a man to desire more than just the physical act of sex with his wife. You say, why do you keep talking about the perspective and the motivation of a male, a man in marriage, because I'm a male in marriage. And I speak from that experience. What we see is that the physical act of sex for David with his wives still left him lacking feeling loved. The physical act of sex with his wives did not minister to his soul, to his emotional needs, to the needs of feeling loved for and cared for. And so this covenantal friendship with Jonathan did not have any sexual acts involved, and yet he experienced feeling loved, respected, valued in a way that surpassed what he was ever given by any of his wives. In 1 Samuel 18 and 1, it says that Jonathan loved David as his own soul. Some translations say, or Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. Why is that important, that scripture? Listen, that is a picture of the fulfillment of the second greatest commandment in the Old Testament. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here in this friendship of David and Jonathan was the essence of the Old Testament law being experienced by David who never experienced this from his wives. He didn't experience with any of his wives a love where they loved David as they loved themselves. They just loved themselves and or did not consistently demonstrate doing unto David what they would want done to them. You remember what Jesus said? He said regarding the second greatest commandment in the Old Testament, you shall love your neighbor... As yourself. That is what's being pictured in the relationship, the friendship of David and Jonathan. Not a sexual relationship, but the essence of the spirit of the law. Of doing for another what you would want done for you. Of, of giving another preference and showing them respect and honor. Even to the loss of your own self-interest and ambition. It's from there that I quickly moved on to Solomon. David's son, in search of the sufficient content regarding the best sex ever. I thought, surely 
He who wrote the Song of Solomon in the Bible, if you've never read it, it is filled with such intense and explicit sexual language that surely if anyone understood about the possibility of the best sex ever, it would be Solomon. However, I quickly learned in my search that it would need to lead me elsewhere. For Solomon, according to 1 Kings 11.3, he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart from following fully the Lord. Solomon communicates, it's recording in Scripture, that he didn't withhold himself from anyone his eye desired. And yet with the addition of each wife or concubine, it was never the way for him to find the best sex ever. When he found a woman who thought he would experience the best sex ever, that first time together seemed so ecstatic. It seemed like such a high for him. But that high could not be attained again with the same woman again. He had to seek his next conquest in hopes of alleviating temporarily his sexual addiction. The addiction of the lust of the eyes. And the bottom line is, is any sex that turns away your heart from being fully devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ cannot be the best sex ever. So all that to say... You at least know I tried. <laughs> but could not arrive at the needed content related to the issue of best sex ever. You say, why? Well, listen, maybe this is because by seeking the best sex ever, we can never find it. But by seeking the greatest commandments of Jesus and the priority of His kingdom, we can find it for our marriage for what it looks like for our marriage with the specific issues we face in our marriage. Now let me say regarding this topic of the best sex ever. If there is a such thing as the best sex ever, it is never found in disobedience to God's word, God's will, or God's way. If there is a such thing as best sex ever, it's only between one man and one woman in the context of marriage. If there is a, the best sex ever, it is never just the physical act of sex. It's not just physical, it must be more. If there is a thing as the best sex ever, it's never just to fulfill the goal and desire of just one of the married Partners, you say, well, if there is the best sex ever, what would it be like? Well, scripturally, we can frame and say, if there is a thing called the best sex ever, it's more than just physical. It's the engaging of the whole person, spirit, soul, and body. So often we think about our relationship with our creator God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. We think about that as one aspect of our life and that it's distinct and compartmentalized from all the other areas and issues of life. But that's not the biblical worldview. That it can be spiritual because it's done in worship to God. It's done with thankfulness to God. And it's done in honor of God. Spiritual. 
When we think about the possibility of the best sex ever, it would have to be the involvement of the whole person of each spouse, the spiritual, emotional, soulish, and physical components being aligned and fulfilled as well as their spouses, spiritual, emotional, soulish, and physical components aligned and fulfilled in the momentarily, momentarily experience of the mystery of the oneness of marriage. So also, now that you know I've at least tried on the topic of best sex ever, I want to leave us today with some relational thoughts for all of us. For the married, for the single. Remember what our main passage said, though, in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 27. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh. But I would spare you. See, as humans, we find in the biblical worldview in Genesis 1, that as humans, we were created for relationships. We were created for relationships. It's not good for any of us to be alone, to lack relationships. Marriage, according to Genesis 2.18, is one of the God-created contexts that we may enter into for such a relationship. So it's not good for us to be alone. We need relationships in our life. Marriage is one of the contexts that can provide such relationship that we need according to the way God's designed and created every one of us. And yet, there's an issue. The issue is that every one of us here and all who've lived except Jesus have sinned. And we've been affected by our sin. We've been affected by the sin of others. And we have been affected by the sin of the world that we live in. And the results of such sin is relational difficulties, not just with God, but with others. And because of those truths that we were created for relationship, and yet all of us have been affected by sin that affects the relationships we were created for, we have to face this issue of tension and the issue of needed transformation. In marriage, this necessary transformation for each spouse presents the majority of marital conflicts and difficulties. In your friendships, the areas where necessary transformation is needed presents the majority of difficulties in that friendship or relationship. Now, when it comes to marriage, though these are two truths that were created for relationship, and marriage is a context, a God-designed and given and created context to experience such relationship, and yet we need necessary transformation because of sin's effect on us, what you find, though, scripturally, is though those truths are, those points are true, Marriage is one of the best contexts to be motivated to yield to the necessary needed transformation. Because marriage is a covenant relationship 
that says, till death do us part. What that means is, is marriage is a covenantal agreement before God and with our spouse that we are in this even when tensions get tough, even when trouble comes, even when there's difficulties, and therefore because we can't leave the context, it becomes one of the greatest contexts for followers of Jesus to be motivated to deal with the transformation they need in their own life. See, I have found that without such covenantal context, people when they face tension and difficulties and trouble and great trouble, that we all naturally resist isolate and seek to find a way from not allowing God to put His finger, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, on the areas that needs healing or transformation or deliverance in our life. Without a fact, I know by the Spirit, not because I know necessarily details, but there are marriages here today that are at a standstill. For some of you that it may be single, it's not a marriage, but it can be a relationship with a family member, a friend, a childhood friend. But when it comes to standstills in marriage or in relationship, there are reasons for such standstills. I want to talk about two of them. When it comes to marriage, the first reason for a standstill is one or both of the spouse's untransformed dysfunctions makes them an unsafe person. Now this term, unsafe person, I'm using is from Dr. Henry Cloud and Dr. Townsend. In fact, you'll see later in the card I've listed a couple of their resources that I encourage you to buy that will help you in some of the tensions and trouble that you're having for those who are married and those that are single but in relationships. Here's what they say about an unsafe person. Unsafe people are defensive instead of open to feedback. Now, if this is your spouse, you alone are unable to confront them effectively regarding necessary areas of needed transformation in them. If your spouse is in a posture of being defensive and not open to feedback, then you alone will be unable to confront them effectively regarding areas that they need transformation and the work of the gospel in their life. Now, one of the ways you can find out to what level the standstill is or what level your spouse is regarding being an unsafe person currently because of their hurt or dysfunctions is you can first seek to write down what you desire to communicate to them. It's a less confrontational approach. It's a safe approach in the sense that emotions can't get spiraled out of control in the moment of confrontation where people begin to say things that they don't mean or places where they've held bitterness or or unforgiveness or anger then becomes motivated in a moment of emotional frenzy to utter words that are sharper than a sword and hurtful. 
is you can write down what you desire to say and you can then see if through that way of less confrontational, do they demonstrate some acceptance or openness to the feedback or what it is you're seeking to communicate. Next, Dr. Cloud and Townsend says that unsafe or unsafe people blame others instead of taking responsibility. They blame others. There's always a reason. It's always someone else's fault. They don't take ownership of the needed areas in their own life that needs transformation in the work of the gospel in their life. Unsafe people also only apologize instead of changing their behavior. Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians, one of his letters, he talked about that that's a worldly sorrow. It's a false repentance. It's not a true change of mind or the preference of the will. He said that biblical repentance leads to fruits, fruits that can be observed. New behavioral chains and acts that demonstrate a zeal for God, a zeal for righteousness, a diligence to now be empowered by the grace of the gospel to obey God and demonstrate His character in a relationship. He lists that there's fruits. So unsafe people only apologize instead of changing their behavior. Now some of you have a spouse that the majority of the time doesn't even apologize. They just wait until the tension or the matter at hand and the emotions surrounding the matter sort of die down, settle down, and then they just begin to engage back their spouse as if nothing's happened. So if you have a spouse that currently is unwilling and, and is not demonstrating the capacity to acknowledge their wrongs, then you have to understand they're going to be much less willing to change their behavior. Unsafe people also avoid working on their problems instead of dealing with them. Now here's the issue. We can, in our relationships or in our marriage, we can weave in and out in seasons of demonstrating in that season being an unsafe or safe person. That there can be times in our life that our heart is wide open, our mind is wide open to the finger of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, to confront areas of our past, areas of our upbringing, areas that have been affected by sin in our life that need transformation. But then there's other times that certain issues the Lord's trying to bring up because He's got the answer for it, the provision for it through the power of Jesus, but then a spouse or a person in a friendship becomes unwilling. Unwilling. Lastly, an unsafe person or unsafe people are stagnant instead of growing. Now watch this. In a marriage relationship, if you have a spouse who becomes unwilling... A spouse who becomes stagnant, guess what that equals? A standstill. There is no moving forward in the area of tension if one spouse becomes unwilling or stagnant. Same with a friendship. Same with a relationship with a sibling or a parent. So when it comes to standstills, a major reason for standstills is one or both 
of the persons in the relationship or the spouse has untransformed dysfunctions that makes them currently an unsafe person. Another reason for standstills is what number two is on your card, patterns create walls. I want you to say that with me. Patterns create walls. See, patterns create walls. When you think about patterns, I think about how walls are built. Walls are not built by just random acts or random bricks spread abroad. Walls are built with repetition and the same act being done repeatedly. Walls are built by patterns. And when it comes to marriage and it comes to relationship, it's not so much the individual every once in a while mistake, hiccup, failure that builds walls. See, we're all going to fall short at times in this process of being transformed and conformed to the image of Jesus. We're all at times going to display a wrong act or be too harsh in our words or not be attuned when our spouse is sharing something significant or in a moment of stirred emotions we say something that we really don't mean or didn't want to express. It's not these random individual failures and slip-ups that build walls. See, the individual here and there mistake doesn't build a wall. It just builds moments where it's like the toe is, is stubbed. Uh, moments that bring a, a little discomfort and, and tension. But because it's not a pattern, it becomes easy to get over. It gets, it gets easy to move forward, to forgive, to, to keep moving forward and staying connected. Sure, we have mistakes and we stumble our toe. We fail and it leads to momentary tension or argument or, or friction. But because it's not consistent, because it's not a pattern being repeated, yeah, it's... Difficult, but we're able to step over, forgive easier, move forward. The reason marriages, the primary reason in relationships reach a standstill, it's because patterns doing the same sin or the same untransformed behavior, attitudes, actions, lack of actions towards our spouse in our marriage or in our relationships, it's the pattern that creates walls. It's the pattern. It's the time and time again dysfunction being expressed. And once you get 
a pattern and keep repeatedly doing something that is not God's best. That's displaying an area that's untransformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then the pattern brings a wall and now you got a marriage that's at a standstill because you can't really see each other correctly, communicate to each other correctly, approach each other correctly, because patterns create walls, and walls break the ability for the intimacy, the fellowship, the teamwork that's necessary in moving forward. Patterns create walls, and walls lead to standstills. Now what do you do when you're in a marriage or relationship where spouse is continuing not to do random failures and a mistake here and a mistake there and a brick here and a brick there. You know another thing about a brick here and a failure there is they're easy to remove from the future path that the marriage is going to walk in. They're easy to get out of the way. But patterns, when they create a wall, becomes very difficult to be able to move forward, to be able to approach each other with a sound mind and, and wisdom. So what do we do in such cases of a standstill? Here's where it starts. Realize your current demands of life are greater than your ability to meet them. Realize that the life and the marriage and the relationship you find yourself in, that if patterns have built walls, the reality is, is your life is demanding something of you that you don't have the ability to be able to deal with. You and your own ability can't remove the wall. You don't know how to systematically, piece by piece, dismantle all that's been built up in the pattern over the years. So you accept, you realize the demands of life currently are greater than your ability to meet them. Now, if you come from a religious background, and I'm saying that in a negative way, if you come from a works righteousness, meaning a relationship with God or an idea of a relationship with God that's, that's based on like your performance and you being perfect and that you can't ever show that there's areas that need to be transformed or weak, then listen, you have to first let the gospel begin to touch that. What that means is every one of us individually and also in relationships will face in life, in area that reveals that we on, in, on and in our own ability don't have the necessary tools to change and know what to do. That's why Jesus came. He came because we couldn't save ourselves. He came because there's times that we wouldn't have the knowledge that we need. And so God provided Jesus to become our needed knowledge, to become our needed wisdom, to become our needed grace, to become the agent of change. It's the gospel. This is a gospel church. You don't surprise me when you reveal you have junk. Because I got junk. And that's the power of the gospel. 
that the Father's revealed His love, that we don't have to hide, that we have needed transformation. We don't have to make the world think that we have all the necessary tools and knowledge and wisdom and capacity and ability to meet all the demands of life. No, that's why the gospel's available. That there is a mighty deliverer. There is a wall-breaking God. There is a Jesus that can pass through walls of your spouse that you can't get through and start the process of transformation. Hallelujah. Now because of this, and the demands of life's going to reveal at times that, that the demands are greater than our ability to know what to do or meet them, what this means is, it requires it requires the establishment of an intentionally focused growth context. Requires it. A new context is needed that is strategically and intentionally a growth-focused context. See, the demands of life reveal to us that in the current context that we have in life, we are unable to receive the necessary ingredients of the gospel and through the methods of God to deal with the current demands of life. So here's what that looks like. Number three, with a focused, intentional growth, focused context, there will be no progress. If you're at a standstill in your marriage, if you're in a standstill in a relationship, you all can't get past it on your own. The demands of life is realizing that the current context you have and that you engage in is not sufficient enough to meet the demands of your current reality. So there's got to be a new context. There's got to be something or somewhere you put yourself that's intentionally focused to grow and deal with what has created walls or else growth won't happen. See, listen to me, spouse. You will be unable to lead your spouse nor change them when patterns create walls. But listen, if a new growth context isn't engaged in or provided, there will be no change. And that's why Here's some context examples. It's find an agreed-upon, spirit-filled, professional counselor and marriage counselor that is a new context, a context that maybe you never thought you'd have to have, you've never experienced before, but it's intentional and it's focused on dealing with the the patterns that creates walls that you in your own ability or you in your own marriage can't determine or know how to get past. Now, there are mature connect groups that have grown together and have grown in a emotional health and that can actually help provide as a context, an intentional focus on areas to grow. Listen, there are some marriages that have never seen or observed what healthy communication looks like because they don't come from a home and a context with healthy communication. Or how to communicate even though you have different personalities or styles. A mature, healthy connect group can provide some observation 
for some marriages in a standstill. I encourage you. Even if that's not all that's needed in your marriage and relationship, get in a connect group. It's one of the reasons we have them. Another thing I'm reminded of is the book of Philemon. Now, most people don't read Philemon because we don't even normally know how to say it. We say file a man. Yeah, I'm going to file that man away. I'm done with him. I'm done with the relationship. No, Philemon. And what you find in Philemon is that there's this relationship. Basically a boss over an employee. A servant. Not the way we think of it in the history of our country, but a, but a servant who serves the household. And there's tension between them. Because the servant ran away. And they're at a standstill in this relationship. And the pattern of him not returning and staying away has created a wall between them. And guess what it takes? It takes a new context. A new intentionally focused, growth-oriented context. And in Philemon, you read that context is the person of the Apostle Paul. And he comes in and he provides a new context as a mediator and he begins to work and lead them through the process of dealing with the wall between them that they in their own ability and capacity don't have that's led to a standstill. That's like a counselor. That's like a mentor. These are all healthy, growth-focused contexts. Lastly, what do you do in the cases of standstill number four? is as you, after you establish these new growth contexts, then you focus on what you currently can do. And you choose one thing to stop and one thing to start. One negative thing, it could be a thing that is a little more occasional. Maybe it's a couple bricks. And maybe you see if things continue in that way, another, another wall's about to be built. And you seek to stop the expression of that attitude or those words or those behavior. And then one thing you can start that is healthy, that demonstrates the kingdom of God, the heart of Jesus, the love of Jesus. Now whatever you are led to do by the Holy Spirit to stop and start will for the majority, watch this, be found in the area of respect. But the Holy Spirit, when you, when you get down and boil it down to the root of it, one thing to stop in your relationships and one thing to start will primarily fall in the area of respect. It will be one thing to stop related disrespecting your spouse or disrespecting the other person in the relationship. And it will be one thing to start that demonstrates practically and clearly and outwardly your respect for your spouse or friend. Maybe for some of you, what needs to stop is trying to be the change agent for your spouse. And one thing to start is an intentional growth-focused context together. You say, well, my spouse is unwilling to go to such growth context. And listen, you start modeling your participation in a growth context. And as they see you growing in the grace of the knowledge of the Lord, your example can become an expression, an observation, a way for your spouse. Maybe for you it's stop using certain words and disagreements, like words like never and always. Like you never help. 
And the other person's about to really get upset because they're thinking, last week I did this, I did that. Maybe it stopped using words that just try to totally label someone completely evil or completely good. The reality is, is we have areas that currently demonstrate Jesus and areas that currently still need transformation. That's the difficulty of relationships because of sins affected us all, and at times there's a mixture. The mixture. So maybe it stopped using the words never and always when you're seeking to communicate grievances and feelings that have been hurt at times. Maybe it start only speaking of specific and current actual behaviors, acts, or events that's taken place. So we're not going to generally talk about what you did. We're going to start only talking about specific acts and deal with them one at a time. Maybe for some it stopped bringing up grievances in areas of unforgiveness from past issues, like three years ago or five years ago. And then start actually confronting those grievances by facing them, forgiving them, letting the gospel speak to them, and seek help for them in order to finally move forward and not holding on to grievances and places that you were hurt from years and years ago. Maybe for you it's stop using your spouse as the blunt of jokes when out and about. You like comedy, you like laughter, good, I do too. But I've had to learn to stop ever allowing my wife to be a part of my comical routine. Because it goes downhill very quickly. And the people want to laugh, but they're scared to laugh. Because they, they know I'm married to a Latino, and they know some called stereotypes, and they don't know she's about to go off on somebody. Maybe it's stopping. Listen, maybe it's to start affirming their strengths. You say, dear God, you don't understand. The strengths of my spouse is about as strong as a wet noodle. No, no, listen, listen. Here's where you start. You start with what's called the 101 strategy principle. You find the 1% thing that they do great, and you affirm it 1,000% of the time. The 1%, the one thing that they do well consistently, and you affirm it 100% of the time. Some of you saying, as the band, you, you can come. Some of you saying, well, you don't understand. I can't stop and I can't start. Listen to me. The cross of Jesus stands right in the middle of that and says, no, God has made available for you and I the grace and the power that we can stop some things and start some things that, according to God's will. But here's the deal. Most of you are like people you see in Scripture. They come to Jesus. They know He can. They know Jesus can absolutely run through a wall, absolute dynamite a wall, that Jesus is the real original power team. He and Himself. He don't need five guys. He is all good by Himself. He's, he can smash bottles over the head, not bleed. He can bend frying pans. I mean, Jesus is the one-man wrecking ball. And most of us say, yeah, I believe that. God's got all power. He's got all ability. But then practically we don't know what that looks like. Watch this. Here's how it starts. That the area you want to stop and start, you got to undergird it. you got to picture it. you got to communicate it. And you got to get outside support on it. 
the way practically we began to move forward in the power and the provision of the cross that is the wisdom of God and the power of God that says to our natural mind and the culture around us that the cross is not significant, that there's not healing in a man dying on a cross who has had his beard plucked out and his head swollen and his back ripped open, that there's no revel- uh, there's no, uh, it's not relevant to my marriage and to my issues and to my relationships. No, listen, it's relevant. But the practical way to begin to appropriate its power and wisdom regarding stopping and start is you have to undergird it. You've got to undergird the issue with the core value, with something you desire to start more than what needs to stop. See, most people just focus on what they want to stop, but they don't have anything undergirding that process. You've got to undergird the process with an absolute aspired and desired value that's greater than the momentary tension and difficulty and pain of the process. So you've got to undergird it with the biblical core value of your life. And then secondly, you've got to picture it. You've got to begin picture. When that aspired value, core value, conviction comes to fruition, you picture what the, your life will look like, what the marriage will look like, what your friendship will look like. You got to begin to picture it. You got to picture your preferred future. Of stopping the one thing and starting one thing. Then watch, you got to communicate it. You got to communicate it to someone that you trust. You got to communicate what's going on in the heart out of the mouth. That's even tied into the process of salvation and deliverance, transformation. And then listen, you get outside support on it. You've got to have an intentional growth context for the issue or issues at hand. The majority of people, listen, the majority of you that I'm looking at, the majority of us, due just to the fact of our personality type, cannot change ourselves by ourselves. You can undergird it and picture it, but without the communicating it and getting outside support on it, you can't make it through the process. I'm here to say that Jesus is the answer and practically this is what it looks like. You got to undergird it. You got to picture it. You got to communicate it. And you got to get outside support on it. And stand stills can cease and progress can happen in Jesus' name. That healing can flow like a river. That we can move forward by the grace and the power of God. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. 